Good morning once again. We continue in our series this morning in Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. For those of you who are guests today or maybe back for the first time in a long time, uh, we, generally speaking, work our way through books of the Bible because uh, the way the Bible has been constructed is the way God constructed it, and I can't add anything to it that's going to help God out. So we believe God wrote us one book in 66, and so we, we work our way through books of the Bible endeavoring to understand what God has said and the way that God has said it because we think that's the way He wants us to understand it. And so we've just been methodically working our way through the Gospel of Mark for some time now with some breaks in between for Christmas and Easter last year and those sorts of things, but we're, we're getting now close to the end of Mark's Gospel. It's a 16-chapter Gospel, and we are at the end of chapter 14. We'll begin in verse 53 today, which follows the account of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, not His will, but the Father's will to be done, and then He is betrayed by Judas, and all of the disciples abandon Him. And then we get this interesting account of the man who's following after Jesus in a linen sheet. We're not sure why, and they seize him, and he escapes naked. That was the end of of last Sunday's message, and now we begin in verse 53. Would you hear with me the word of God? They led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. And he went out onto the porch, and a rooster crowed. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. Immediately, a rooster crowed a second time, 
And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we ask that you would help us to worship Christ well in the hearing of your word today. Lord, where we need to be convicted or challenged, please do that. God, where we need to be encouraged, please encourage us. Jesus, we thank you that under pressure, you faced the questions of the religious leaders honestly and candidly, knowing what it would cost you. And God, we ask that we would not only learn from your example, but understand that we, we've got to be saved by you as well. Lord, help us to be faithful under fire as you were faithful for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus has been arrested by the Sanhedrin, but he's not yet been charged because they don't really have anything to charge him with. So they take him to the home of the high priest, an upper room apparently at the high priest's home because Peter is down below in the courtyard. So in verse 54, we we just read in verse 50, they all left him and fled, but in verse 54, perhaps Peter's had a change of heart because we see him following Jesus at a distance. Perhaps Peter is is now ready to die with Christ. But there's a clue in verse 54 that Peter's still not yet a rock for Jesus because he's following Jesus at a distance. And in verse 66, we see that he's down below in the courtyard while Jesus is upstairs enduring a show trial before the Sanhedrin. After telling the story of Jesus' faithful testimony before the high priest, Mark returns to the story of Peter and his faithless testimony before a servant girl. For the third time in chapter 14, Mark is showing us how great Jesus is by using the strategy of comparing and contrasting. In this case, he compares and contrasts the faithfulness of Jesus with the faithlessness of others. In this case, Peter. As Edwards writes, the juxtaposition or the comparison of Jesus and Peter creates a sermon without words on the meaning of bearing witness under persecution. So this morning I want to talk to you about identifying with Christ when it is costly. And our model is Jesus, the faithful witness. So church, when we have to bear a cost for identifying with Christ, there's Three things we see in this text. First, we must learn from the faithful testimony of Jesus. Second, we must learn from Peter's betrayal of Christ. And finally, we must be broken over our sin and live for the one who saves us by his faithfulness. I want to begin, normally I dive right into the points, but I want to begin by teasing out a little bit this introductory clause, when identifying with Christ is costly. Did you know it'll cost you something to follow Jesus? Identifying with Christ in a world that hates him is costly. Jesus said in Mark 13, verse 13, you will be hated by all because of my name. That's a pretty absolute statement, is it not? In our country, I want to speak to you as 
most of you, I assume, U.S. citizens in our country, we've enjoyed a history in which we have not really had to understand how opposed the world is to Jesus, but that is changing, and it's changing rapidly even here. We now live in a country that cannot even pass a bill protecting babies who survived an abortion. We are one of four countries in the world that permit an abortion up to the point of birth. We no longer recognize marriage as between one man and one woman for life or encourage people to live in ways that are consistent with their God-given biology. And the price to be paid for rejecting the world's redefinition of humanity and biology and family is increasing every single day. At a minimum, identifying with Jesus will cost you friends. It'll cost you popularity. In some cases, it'll cost you $135,000 for not baking a cake for a wedding that you don't believe is a wedding. But on the horizon, church, there are greater costs to be paid. Many pastors, Christian musicians, and churches are already breaking under the pressure of the world. They're apologizing for the biblical position on gender and sexuality on talk shows. They're throwing away biblical Christianity in order to be accepted by the world. Just this week, the United Methodist Church was on the brink of adopting a policy that would compromise the biblical historic position on men and women in marriage. And it wasn't the American Christians who rose up and saved the church. It was Christians from Africa and from Asia and from all other parts of the world who came and rejected the proposal of the bishops and said, we're going to stand on the side of God's word, at least for now. Christians are buckling under the weight of the world, unwilling even to pay the price of reduced popularity and declining book sales in order to stand with Jesus. What will we do when the cost is much greater? If we will not clearly identify with Jesus on issues of gender, human sexuality, marriage, evangelism, 47% of evangelical Christians today say that we shouldn't share the gospel if we are afraid it would offend someone else. What in the world are we doing, church? We don't want to offend anybody. The gospel is offensive. You are dead in your trespasses and sin. You're a sinner who is dying and headed for hell unless God changes you from the inside out. There's nothing about that that is positive news to the sinful ears that need to hear it. We need a Spirit of God to move through our country and change hearts and transform people. And we're standing on our hands apologizing for the gospel, but it's the only thing that gives life. What are we doing? we apologize for these issues, what will we do when the price gets even greater? The pressures we face, church, for casting aside our sinful identity and identifying instead with Christ the risen Savior are not going to subside until He returns. Paul tells us, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And in those moments when it costs us something to identify with Jesus, We've got to learn from the faithful testimony of Jesus, which we see in verses 53 through 65. When the council begins the trial, they don't begin with the presumption of innocence. The the church, I mean the world rather, believes that you're guilty if you're following Jesus. They've already presumed that you're guilty. 
the trial in this case will follow whatever course is necessary to validate their preconceived conclusions. In their eyes, Jesus already stands convicted. They've just got to figure out how. In verse 55, we read the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus. The word kept trying or seeking has a negative tone. This is not a a neutral fact-finding mission. It's a show trial with a foregone conclusion. Indeed, the Sanhedrin didn't even follow their own rules for a religious trial. I want to give you just a few examples. It's amazing what's happening to Jesus in this moment. In cases involving the possibility of capital punishment, which is what they wanted to do with Jesus, trials were forbidden at night. Guess what? It's nighttime. In cases where there's a guilty verdict, guess what? They're supposed to have a second trial the next day to ensure that they had a fair case. Trials were not permitted during festivals, and it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they were not permitted on the Sabbath, and trials were to be held at the temple, not in a private home of anyone, much less the high priest. They were violating their own rules. Even when everything is stacked against Jesus, even when they break their own rules, even when he's presumed guilty, those who reject the authority of Jesus cannot find a credible reason for rejecting him. They're they're looking. They're looking. They can't find. Look at verse 55 again. They keep seeking to obtain testimony. They keep looking and looking and digging. And what do they find? They find nothing. Now, many... Verse 56, give false testimony against Jesus. People who are opposed to the authority of Jesus attack him with lies and misrepresentations and mischaracterizations. But look at the end of verse 56 and at the end of verse 59. In both cases, we learn that the testimony against Jesus is not consistent. Even their testimony about Jesus claiming to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days is not consistent. Consistent. Now we know that this is something Jesus in fact did say because we read it in John 2.19. Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. So why is their testimony inconsistent? Probably because they don't understand how Jesus is going to tear down the temple and how he's going to raise it up. He's not literally going to reconstruct a physical temple. The temple will become himself. And when he tears the temple down, that doesn't happen until 70 AD. But in the moment that he is crucified, the veil is torn. And access to the Father is now granted through the crucified and resurrected King of kings and Lord of lords. They didn't understand. The world dismisses the authority of Jesus with all sorts of false testimony, don't they, church? Some deny his existence altogether. Some say he was just a good man, but anything less than confessing the absolute authority and deity of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is false testimony. The only consistent thing about their case against Jesus is their desire to do away with Jesus. At the end of the day, truth is on our side. Truth is on the side of Jesus because Jesus is the truth. We don't have anything to fear from science or philosophy or any challenges to Christ's authority. If they are conducted honestly, all the disciplines in the world, medicine, science, philosophy, morality, whatever you want to study, when conducted with integrity and honestly following their own rules of inquiry, they all end up pointing 
to Christ. But what we must understand is that the hearts of the world are set against Christ. They're not interested in truth. When crucifying Christ's authority over your life is the overriding concern, as it is in the case of the Sanhedrin, you throw truth and consistency out the window and instead do whatever it takes to destroy Christ and preserve your own power. Why is the world running from the authority of Christ? They don't want Him to have the say in their life. Why are they trying to bend biology to fit what they feel because they don't want God to be the author of life and the giver of life and to be accountable to him. They want to be accountable to their own feelings. When we say there must be a genetic, some say, I'm sorry, there must be a genetic explanation for same-sex attraction, but then when they add the cue to the end of the LGBTQ and put a plus mark in it, and then they realize there's clearly no genetic explanation for gender dysphoria, then they're confused because there's got to be a genetic explanation for one, but there can't be for the other, and they have no explanation for their inconsistency, and the consistency that they need is found in the Word of God. The reason that they don't want to let you know that they're struggling internally is because they would then have to wrestle with the fact that God is the Lord of truth. The world moves right and left and up and down, often at the same time, in search of arguments and policies designed to undermine God's good design and the people who belong to Him by faith in Jesus. And the question is, when they move from calling you a bigot to telling you you can no longer work at their company, will you still stand for Christ? The case against Jesus, as it always does, unravels. What the world cannot win by logic, they will try to win by force. The high priest starts asking the questions in his own home in verse 60. Jesus, faced with false accusations, is silent. The promise of Isaiah 53.7 is coming to fruition. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Jesus does not dignify the lies with a response because he knows that they will not hear the truth. But in verse 61, the high priest asks the question. Literally, he doesn't even phrase what he asks as a question. In the Greek, it says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One. And he's saying it repeatedly. You're the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Is that who you say you are? You're the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And do you see the irony in the text? The high priest is declaring exactly who Jesus is. With great clarity. You are the Son of the Blessed One. You are the Messiah. Is that who you say you are? Oh yes, that is who Jesus is. In chapter 8, when Peter recognizes Jesus is the Messiah. What does Jesus say? Don't tell anybody. But now, before the Sanhedrin, when it will cost him his life, and the high priest says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One. Is that what you're saying? What does Jesus say? I am. He uses the divine name of Exodus 3. You can put your money on it. Take it to the bank. I am God in the flesh standing before you and you can't recognize my identity until you recognize that I will suffer for it so that I might be able to save sinners. The reason he now discloses his identity is because everything he was sent to do is about to be accomplished. The son will suffer and die to pay 
for the sin of the world. The cross awaits, but it will not be the conclusion for Jesus. Because on the other side of the cross will be His coronation. Which is why after He says, I am, you will see the Son of Man standing and coming in glory. As we saw in chapter 13, He is the Son of Man who will be received in glory, who will rule and reign in righteousness through the proclamation of the gospel by His church. And at His return, when He comes to judge the living and the dead, the high priest now stands in judgment of Jesus, but soon He will stand before Jesus as His judge. The high priest rends His garments. He tears His clothes as a sign of deep vexation and concern. He dismisses the need of further witnesses, contradicting Deuteronomy, which says we need multiple witnesses, at least two witnesses that agree in order to convict anyone. They proclaim that Jesus is worthy of death for the crime of blasphemy. And in verse 64, they all agree. A man has claimed to be God's son and God's name, they believe, has been blasphemed or profaned. And I want you to hear this and hear this well, church. They do not crucify Jesus for what He's done. He's healed people. He's loved people. He's blessed people. The, church, the world is not angry at us for the good that we do. They are angry at us for the God to whom we belong. They do not crucify Him for what He has done. They crucify Him for who He is. Is and the absolute authority that means he must have over their lives. The Sanhedrin, the most religious people in town, do not even know the God they claim to serve, the God who becomes a man to rescue sinful men. The great Emmanuel, who was promised from the Old Testament past, has come and is standing before him, before them. And what do they do with him? They begin to spit on him. And they blindfold him. And they pummel their Passover lamb with their fists. And they mock him. And they ask him, prophesy now. Tell us now, Jesus, who's hitting you in the face. And as they do, they are fulfilling prophecy. Before them stands the Messiah of whom Isaiah said, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Jesus told the truth about his identity at the moment it would cost his life and bring our salvation. So church, in those moments that it will cost us to stand for Jesus, even friendships, even family, our job or our career or our reputation or our next book deal or whatever it is, we must remember God uses faithfulness under fire to bring his salvation to the world. If Jesus had quit at the moment that it counted most in order to spare his life, then we would still be dead in our trespasses and sins. And so when the fire comes, you stand firm for the king who stood for you and let him work through your faithfulness to point to a faithful God that he'll save still more. Secondly, we must learn from Peter's betrayal of Christ. In verse 67, a servant girl recognizes Peter and calls him out. She calls Jesus the Nazarene. Nazarene was a term of derision. In Acts 24, Jews, Jews called Christians Nazarenes for following Jesus the troublemaker. 
Peter wants to be near Jesus, but he doesn't want any trouble. Did you know in this world you can't be near Jesus and not have trouble? So he denies that he was with Jesus. He says, I I don't know or understand what you're talking about. In the Greek, the word know and understand are two different words for the word know. So you're like, well, I don't know and I don't know. What, What are you saying, Peter? It's two different types of knowing. One is for theoretical knowledge and one is for experiential knowledge. What Peter is saying is, is I don't know him and I don't know about him. I got, I got no clue who it is. I don't have any connection to him. I don't know this Jesus. It's a complete denial. And Peter, who began following Jesus at a distance. Church, did you know it's not enough to follow Jesus at a distance? If you are trying to follow Jesus at a distance, well, I want to follow Jesus, but I don't want to be so close that it costs me anything, you will end like Peter did. You will end up in abandonment and denial. He starts off at a distance, and now he retreats to, my translation said, the porch, but it's really the, the forecourt, the, the entry into the property. All right, so he, he only went as far as the courtyard while Jesus is up in the under, upper room standing trial. And now he's recognized and called out. So he's like, I'm going to back off a little bit. When the pressure comes, do you back off or do you get closer to Jesus? As Edwards writes, a change of place is no substitute for a change of heart. The servant girl cannot deny what her eyes have seen in the light of the fire. Again, she says, this is one of them. Peter first denied he was with Jesus, and now he denied that he was with his disciples. That's the way it is, church. First, you'll, you'll deny that you're with Jesus, and then, well, aren't you hanging out with those people who were with Jesus? I don't know who they are. His denial is not a one-time thing either. In verse 70, it tells us he kept on, the sense of the word is that he kept on saying, and I'm not with them, I'm not with them, I don't know what you're talking about. You see, when the pressure comes for belonging to Jesus and to his disciples, all that Peter will offer is false testimony and ongoing denial. But Peter's accent betrays him. He's a Galilean. The bystanders know it and they press him more. Now Peter, who first confesses that Jesus is the Christ back in chapter 8, now denies Jesus without even saying his name. Do you see that? I do not, verse 71, I do not know this man you were talking about. He can't even utter Jesus' name. The disciple who just hours ago has pledged that he would die with Christ if necessary now swears a curse against himself and proclaims that he does not even know this man. The contrast between Jesus and Peter, church, could not be greater. Jesus reveals who he is under pressure. Peter conceals who he is. Jesus stands firm before the high priest. Peter withers before the questions of a servant girl. Jesus is falsely accused. Peter is accurately identified. Jesus tells the truth leading to his death. Peter denies the truth in order to preserve himself. The effect of this strategy 
of comparing Jesus and Peter is that it amplifies our appreciation for Jesus' courageous sacrifice and His integrity. And it underscores the ugliness of the cowardice and self-preservation and dishonesty in denying Christ. Once more, we see that the flesh fails to stand with Jesus when it is costly. We need more, church, than our determination to do good. We need more than our determination to follow Jesus. We need to be transformed by the resurrection power and grace of Christ extended to those who have denied Him. Which brings us to our third point. We must be broken over our sin and live for the one who saves us by His faithfulness. We are all Peter apart from the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. The sound of the second rooster crow falls on Peter's ears like the sound of a judge's gavel closing the book on a guilty verdict. Peter is guilty. 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 Utterly hopeless and defenseless. And he finally, finally, finally sees himself as he truly is. Can you feel what Peter felt in that moment? Oh, I'm going to stand with you, with you, Jesus. Oh, I'll die for you, Jesus. I'll do whatever it takes for you, Jesus. And the rooster cries the second time and pronounces Peter and Daniel and everyone here is guilty of abandonment and betrayal and denial. And he weeps as he recalls Jesus' prediction of his denial just a few hours before. Peter is broken. And we know that these are tears of godly sorrow and not tears like those of Judas of worldly regret. And how do we know that? Because we know the rest of the story. We know that Peter, just 50 days from now, will preach the Pentecost sermon and see 3,000 souls saved on an afternoon. We know that he will be in prison because he refuses to deny Christ, no matter what it will cost him. We know that these are tears of genuine remorse because Peter is the one who has told the story on himself to Mark to write it down. Wherever Peter goes, this is the testimony of Peter. I thought I was strong. I thought I was courageous. I thought I was a rock. But I thought Jesus needed me. But oh, how I needed Jesus. And as Peter Denied Jesus the third time. Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus was coming out of the trial and he looked right at Peter. Have you ever wondered what Jesus' eyes said in that moment? I think his eyes said this. I told the truth for you. Where you are weak, I'm strong. Whatever you cannot do, I can. Soon, Peter, you will stand for me in ways that you never imagined. I will be raised. I will ascend to the right hand of the Father. I will pour out my Holy Spirit and I will radically and fundamentally change you by the resurrection power of God. And you will do things you never imagined. Not in your power, but in God's power. You will be a rock upon which I will build my church. Jesus did not come to improve our dead lives, church. He came to make our dead lives truly alive. 
As long as our identity is tied to what the world thinks of us or whatever's going to be most comfortable, we will be powerless to withstand the withering attacks of the world. But when we weep over our sinful betrayal of Christ and die to the need to be accepted by the world and surrender our lives to the one who died and lives for us, that's when everything changes. That's when our very identity changes. We get a whole new spiritual DNA through the resurrection of Christ. We live in a world that is consumed with the idea of identity. It's it's what our youngsters are getting every day. Be who you are. Be true to yourself. It sounds great, doesn't it? It's terrible. It's a lie from the pit of hell because being your true, dead, sinful self leaves you dead in your trespasses and sins. It leaves you guilty and defenseless before a holy God denying Christ. When you belong to Jesus, the world's not going to like who you are. Because you will refuse to get trapped in the identity games that the world plays. The world wants you to think that your skin color saves you. That your sports allegiances save you. That your degrees and professional accomplishments save you. That your marital status saves you. Or your political party. Or your reputation. Or your work ethic. Or your six-figure income. Or your victim status. Or your gated community. None of these things will save you. Only Jesus can save you. And when he does, you'll stop playing the world's games, hanging on to the illusion of power over your own life because you've encountered the life-changing, life-altering, life-giving power of God in Christ. Being your true self without Christ making you your new self is an eternally terrible idea. The church is not filled with people committed to being true to themselves. It is filled with people committed to dying to themselves and taking up the life of Christ. The people of God have discovered the joy that comes from being united with Christ who did not deny His identity. Why? So that we could truly be united with Him in His death and resurrection. So church, I want to encourage you this morning. When the world mocks, When the world lies and concocts stories, when they play fast and loose with God's truth and common sense, when they ask us if we are with Jesus the Nazarene, may we unapologetically say, yes, we are. May our lives, our thinking and our speaking be so grounded in the gospel and the hope we have in Christ that our gospel accent gives us away. May we refuse to stand at a distance because we've been rescued and raised up to new and everlasting life by the King who went the distance for us. Would you pray with me? King Jesus, we thank you that when the pressure was on, when death awaited, you did not deny who you are. And God, we ask this morning, if there's anyone here who's still striving to follow you at a distance, to follow you in their own power and in their own strength, God, when the pressure comes through friendships and work or family, and they're they're tempted, God, to to back away or to deny you, Lord, I I pray today would be the day that some might come and surrender and say, I'm all in for Jesus. 
no matter what it costs me. God, for others who may feel led to join with a church that doesn't want to abandon Jesus no matter what it costs us, I pray they would come and join the team as we declare that Jesus is the great I Am, the Son of Man, coming again soon. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.